podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. And now, may you be blessed as we give our attention to the reading of God's Word. We're beginning a new series today uh, using the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, it's, the series is called Renovate. And we're going to begin this morning at the very start of this uh, story, this hundred-year journey. It comes to us uh, today from Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you or who are his people may go to Jerusalem and Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem. And may your God be with you. Wherever this Jewish remnant is found, let their neighbors contribute toward their expenses by giving them silver and gold, supplies for the journey and livestock, as well as a voluntary offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem." Then God stirred the hearts of the priests and the Levites and the leaders of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord. And all their neighbors assisted by giving them articles of silver and gold, supplies for the journey and livestock. They gave them many valuable gifts in addition to all the voluntary offerings. King Cyrus himself brought out the articles that King Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the Lord's temple in Jerusalem and placed them in the temple of his own gods. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Um, This this is going to be a fun series. (laughs) I'm really excited about this one. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah is not often a book that we hear a lot in the church, um, unless there's a building campaign going on. Oh, you know, we read Ezra and Nehemiah because they tell us how it should be done. Well, we're not going to look at it that way. I think there's a whole lot more than just brick and mortar. In fact, um, I think there's so much more going on that um, these four weeks are actually going to extend a few more. Uh, We're going to talk about some of the, the, the concepts of Ezra and Nehemiah, I think, for quite a long time. Let me start by saying this. It's probably a phrase you've heard me say uh, since I've been here at Andover, and it's this, a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want to say. Anybody heard me say that before? A couple of you? Yeah. It's a quote that I um, uh, stole, actually, from my New Testament professor, Dr. Ben Witherington, um, who I'm sure lifted it from somebody else. <laughs> um, any passage of Scripture that is written to a particular people in a particular time, right? We know this, right? Um, uh, The beauty of the Bible is that these stories that have been written over the course of thousands of years of history still speak to us. Yet what we can't do is forget that original audience. It's really easy to read scripture and to go, oh, this is for me. It's personally written to Jim Nichols in 2019. (laughs) No, not so much. 
And while there's still a lot that I get out of those scripture in these passages, words, wonderful words of life, I can really miss out on what the passage may actually be saying if I forget the context. Tracking with me? Today, this series um, uh, has been in my mind for quite a long time. We were supposed to do it actually last fall, um, and it got pushed off. The Lord got in the way, which I'm always thrilled when he does. Um, and um, because of that, um, we uh, have had more things occur in the life of our community that I think these books speak to even greater. Um, in the Bible, our Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are two books but in the Jewish Bible, they're actually one book. Ezra and Nehemiah is one story, um, and this compiled uh, over the course of a hundred-year time period. And during those hundred years, uh, we're going to zero in um, on three individuals, particularly, and how they handled a renovation project that seemed to have been handed to them directly by God. And each renovation project has these really great high moments, like what we just read in the passage. A foreign king says, hey guys, go home and build this temple. Yeah, right? Who would be excited about that? But at the same time, and not to be a killjoy, but all three of these individuals that we're going to look at, their reforms, they're kind of a bust. They kind of end very, eh, kind of anticlimactically. So let's start with the background. How did we get here? Um, Israel... Uh, had been at one time unified, a united nation, under three different kings. You probably know these guys, people by the name of Saul, David, and Solomon. You've heard of them? You know, after Solomon's death, the kingdom went into civil war, and it split, and the 12 tribes of Israel became two different nations. The 10 northern tribes were called Israel. They retained that name. Oftentimes in our scriptures, you'll read them as known as Samaria or even Ephraim. The two southern tribes formed the nation of Judah. Um, Israel, from day one, maintained this kind of constant path of uh, ne'er-do-wells. <laughs> they, 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 they just couldn't get their acts together. Constant thread of rebellion and evil, and there's not a single king in Israel's history that was worth a nickel, which I really have come to find. I don't like that idea, that phrase of not being worth a nickel. It's not cool for me. 722 B, because my last name is Nichols. Okay, God, okay. We're just kind of like the energy in the room is really low today, so. In 722 BC, Samaria uh, was leveled by the Assyrian nation. Pfft, wiped out, no more. Its people scattered. Judah, the southern kingdom, wasn't much better, but they kind of lasted a little bit longer. They had eight good kings in their entire history but often had this cycle of rebellion and revival and rebellion and revival. They outlasted, but over time, the people of Judah, their devotion to God um, pretty much all but fizzled out. And you read it towards the end of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, the hearts of the kings were just, they were yuck. That's a deep theological word. They were yuck. And in 586 BC, the Babylonian Empire in modern-day Iraq, already having conquered Assyria, came in and they just squashed Judah. They level Solomon's temple. Jerusalem is a pile of, of ashes and heap. And the captors, they take anyone worth anything into captivity. And in the story of Scripture, we call this period the exile. 
Before Babylon did its business to Jerusalem, there were a group of prophets who were trying, who were urging God's people to get their acts together, to, to come to repentance. And one of them is a man by the name of Jeremiah. He's called the weeping prophet. And he wept over the sins of his people. And yet he also had to prophesy of this destruction that was coming. He says, at one point, Babylon's coming. He said that the land is going to be left uh, fallow, left alone, left desolate. He said, after a season of Sabbath, which is a big word for Jews, right? Um, rested, God will restore. They have to have a season of Sabbath. Well, what's a season of Sabbath? It's 70 years. Jeremiah prophesies this. Guess what happens? About 70 years later, something occurs. See, in 538 BC, the Persian Empire takes over the Babylonians, and they come under the rule of this king by the name of Cyrus the Great. Have you ever seen 300? Any of you? This is Sparta, you know. Um, that's the Persian Empire in that movie. If you've not seen it, don't. It's really gory. Um, Cyrus, and we read in Daniel, we read in these passages that Cyrus sounds like a really cool guy, but Cyrus was a Zoroastrianist. Um, and they believed in a variety of gods that lived on a spectrum of good and bad, light and dark. And good gods were to be served, they were to be embraced. You wanted to make sure you did everything you could to have those good gods on your favor. But bad gods, dark gods, gods, gods of, the, of the dark, they were to be shunned, they were to be disgraced. And Cyrus believed that the God of Israel was one of those good gods, a God of light. And so this decree is set out that we read just a second ago, this issue that the Jews are to go back and to take, um, to, to, to go back to Jerusalem and build this temple and to go back with all of the things that Babylon had taken from you. Wow. Go to your homeland, rebuild your temple, worship the Lord your God. This is good news. Nod your head, all right? This is good news. And in this reading, we see Cyrus, he appoints a guy a little bit after um, verse 7. He appoints a guy by the name of Sheshbazar. Say that with me because it's fun. Sheshbazar. That's not a Jewish name. <laughs> um, it's actually a god that, it's a name that honors the moon god Shamash. See, the Jewish people's identity had been changed. They've been given new names to honor new gods. Most people think that Sheshbazar was actually the last living child of the last king of Judah. Cyrus instructs him to go home and to begin this work. And Cyrus really wants to impress the Hebrew God because he sends them with, with this Israeli royalty with 50,000 refugees, all the objects that Babylon had stolen from the original temple, and he pays out huge amounts from the royal treasury. Again, we call this good news. <laughs> it's God's favor that seems to be on the people which is really great because it's been like a drought, right? Exile is not fun. So the people arrive and they get settled and they get their supplies ordered and they call um, uh, Lowe's and they get the lumber to come down the, the river and all. And, and, and it takes seven long months before two men raise up to start the work. One of them's name is Joshua. He's the son of a priest. And the other one is Zerubbabel. It's another fun word to say when you're just kind of mindlessly going around. 
Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, who also seems to be connected somehow to the royal family, they um, are to start the work. And the first order of business is to get the altar set. Hey, we're here to build the temple, but you know what we can do? We can worship first. We don't need walls. Let's just worship God. Let's get the sacrifices going again. Let's get the things that, that invite us to be God's people started all over again. And, and they start offering sacrifices, but Ezra tells us that as they offer these sacrifices, they were afraid. They were afraid. They feared their neighbors. They feared the folks around them. They were concerned. Oh, what are they going to say over there when, they do, when we do this? Now, these neighbors are going to play a huge role in the next hundred years. They're, these neighbors are people that were plopped down during the various captivities and exiles, people from all over the, the known world. And so there's intermarriage and there's intra-traditions and there's all kinds of stuff going on. Some of them have pick, taken up Jewish customs, but most of them have kept their own. Several months later, the sacrifices are going good and strong and the temple foundation just the slab of the foundation is laid. It's several months later. I know that frustration. It's a significant moment. The people, they come and they celebrate and work is moving forward. And even though they can't shake this fear, there is joy. But Ezra tells us as there's joy, there's also weeping. There are people who are sad, they are crying because this new temple foundation is rather puny compared to the one that they remember as kids. They miss when everything was just the way it used to be, when their worship place looked the way they wanted it and there wasn't dust all over the place and there, wasn't, there, there, there were signs on the restrooms. And the sound of that day is the sound of this mixing of celebration and weeping all together. And, and at, as the sound fills the hillsides, the neighbors go, huh. And they come down and they see what's happening and they see the sacrifices and they see the, the foundation and they say, hey, we want to be a part of this. And Zerubbabel says, uh-uh. This is our work. This is... God's use of us. You all are impure. You are half followers. You aren't worthy. And the neighbors go from wanting to help and um, to really wanting these new Jews, these new um, squatters and their land after 70 years to be gone. And so this rebellion kicks up because the neighbors are really nasty about it. And do you know what happens? That fear that started with the, the sacrifices, that fear that walked through the, the foundation being laid, that fear gathers a hold of the Jewish people, and for 16 years, nothing happens. Hammers drop right where they're at. Chisels don't move. Nobody sweeps. Nobody picks up. Everything just piles up. Nothing happens for 16 years. About that time, during that time, the Hebrews had built their own houses, paneled houses, um, we're told by the prophets, comfortable places. They got central heat and air, and, you know, everything is looking really great. And at the same time, there is a drought and a famine that descends on the land. 
And the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, they stand up and they go, well, duh, you work all this hard and you get very little because you have chosen yourself over what God has invited and given you. You've chosen to live in these paneled houses instead of living and building God's own home. You live in, um, as my kids would say, this bougie paneled house while God's house is a heap. Thank you, Elizabeth. I'm really glad you're here for that. Zerubbabel stands up and, and, and he hears these prophets say this and he shakes off fear and he gets the people to work. And this is really cool. We actually know the date, March 12th. 515 BC. The temple is finished and it's dedicated. And that number is fascinating because March 12th, 515 BC, do you know what that marks? 70 years since the destruction of the temple. Jeremiah was right. This is a celebration. But we learn from Ezra that the celebration is subdued. I would venture to guess that when we finish everything going on here at Andover, we're going to be like, woo yeah, let's throw a party. It's all great, grand, and wonderful. We're not going to be like, oh, good job. We're going to be excited about it. But the people of Israel were kind of just, eh. The book of Chronicles and the writings of Haggai tell us that Zerubbabel and the people were, were, were glad that it was finished. And it's, while that sounds awesome, it's finished, um, they're not thrilled. When Solomon first dedicates the temple, the ark is brought in. Do you know what happens? The glory of God drops and descends. Do you know what we don't hear about when this temple is rededicated? We don't see the glory of God descend. That's a big deal for a Hebrew people. Nothing. God seems to orchestrate all of this, but there's no glory. There's no huge revival breaking out. There's nothing going on. And Haggai pulls Zerubbabel aside and he says, listen, the temple may look like nothing like the former one, but, and I always love it when God throws in a but. God says, um, be strong. Do not fear, for I am with you. And in a little while, I will shake the heavens, the oceans, and the dry lands. The treasures of all the nations will be brought to this temple. I will fill this place with glory. The future glory of this temple will be greater than its past glory. Woe. And in this place, I will bring peace. I, the Lord of heaven's armies, have spoken. And I got to tell you, if I'm having my quiet time with the Lord and I hear something like that, I'm going to be ready to go after it. What an amazing prophecy. But just a verse later, Zerubbabel's work, the promise of a future glory, have done very little to encourage the people. And Haggai preaches that the people, the priests, they have uh, rebelled once more, this time with a lackluster passion for God. God has given them much and they've responded with very little. Their hearts just aren't in it and everything's just flat. 
This renovation project was a massive undertaking, overwhelming by itself, but God had given the people all of these resources that they could possibly have needed to get the project done. They had the blessing of a government, the blessing of financial backing, they had all the worship materials they could possibly need or want, and they even had uh, um, hungry-for-God neighbors who wanted to come and help, and the people's response was, um, I think a good word might be cavalier at best. Eh. Ever gotten up on a Sunday morning and went, eh? Build the temple is the command by a foreign king. A king who seems to have more faith than the people do. Israel is called the purity, but they're also called to be an example to their neighbors. They have folks who want to worship God, but Israel is so isolated that it causes 16 years of delay. And when parts of the temple are completed, there's cheers, there's weeping, cheers for progress and weeping because it wasn't like it used to be. When called to attention, Zerubbabel jumps up and he's given the same promise that Joshua is given. And yet there is this, um, be strong, I'm with you, and uh, half-hearted response. Half-hearted worship, half-hearted participation, half-hearted devotion to God and these incredible gifts that he's given. Well, it doesn't take much to read Ezra and Nehemiah and realize, whoa, this was written a long time ago, but could it be written and could it be said about the church of the 21st century? 2019? I think there's a warning in Ezra and Nehemiah for us about lackluster faith, about a building project um, that could take the focus away from the real thing. We've been renovating at Andover for some time, all three of my years since I've been here, and I have to wonder as we read about Ezra and Zerubbabel as this whole series has been delayed several months, just like our building project has been delayed, I'm wondering if God is inviting us to a heart check. Is, is it possible that this is all coming to, to, to fruition about the same time that General Conference has this threat of of splitting the church and, blah, and and being nasty and we're all raw. Is this an opportunity that God is offering this community right here at 40509 to go, hmm, steal from Wesley, how is it with your soul? Is this an opportunity for us to see that God has given us everything that we need and yet are we just choosing a building over God's glory? I know, I'm meddling big time, aren't I? I guess what I've been wondering the last several weeks, and particularly this week, is I've, I've spent time with, with Zerubbabel and Ezra and Haggai and Zechariah, is if Haggai were to show up here, what would he say to us? Would he say, beloved, be strong, take courage, because the past glory ain't nothing. Just wait. Or would he say, y'all, the lackluster faith, the lackluster passion, that's what's keeping it from happening. Would you pray with me? Let me, God, um, we thank you for these words and this 
opportunity to um, spend time with this ancient book and this ancient story. And these are hard words in many ways, and yet they're words of life. And so I pray, God, this morning that as, as we have heard from Ezra, as we've seen the, the, the ministry and the work of Zerubbabel, that you would help us to reject fear, um, that we would reject apathy, and that we would hear your call, be strong and of great courage. That we would hear your promise that you've got bigger plans than just a building. You've got plans for glory to drip out and to, uh, to spread all over the place. Open up our eyes wide to see what you would have us to see. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.